HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, November 16th, 2021, and I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, we've got a group, great group of guests. We're going to talk about doomsday drinking and Japanese record bars with a great cast of characters. Let's go around the room and introduce each other. Uh, Chris? Hi, I'm Chris Maestro, the founder and owner of Beer Wax Brooklyn and now also Beer Wax Queens, opening up soon. Ooh, almost soon, right? Yes, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. Ridgewood Queens, correct. Great, and we're going to talk about your Indiegogo campaign too today. Excellent. All right. And Aaron? Hi, I'm Aaron Goldfarb. I'm a uh, journalist and an author of several books, including Hacking Whiskey. Well, Aaron, it's great to have you on, man. We haven't talked in a couple of years, so uh, looking forward to talking today. And Thomas? Yeah. Hey, I'm Thomas Galkin. I'm the multimedia editor at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and I'm here to talk about the Doomsday Drinking Guide that I wrote. All right. So, Thomas, that, that was a, one of the more interesting emails I, I got. Recently, um, there's a bulletin of the atomic scientists, and they wanted to talk about beer. <laughs> so I loved it. Um, just tell us about what you do there and, and, and what the doomsday guide to drinking is. Yeah, so it's uh, basically the bulletin of the atomic scientists goes back to the end of the Second World War. Uh, it was founded by um, Manhattan Project scientists, the scientists who helped develop the nuclear bomb. And um, they were concerned that, you know, after this was dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that uh, the public needed to understand all the dangers about it. Um, and so uh, they created the a group of scientists, created the bulletin in 1945. Um, and then uh, after a couple of years, it was clear this was a successful operation, reaching out to the public and, and to policymakers and other scientists. And so they um, wanted to sort of amp it up as a magazine. And so they made their first cover. And uh, the first actual cover of the magazine in 1947, uh, in the summer of 1947, was 
this doomsday clock, which the wife of one of the scientists, Martil, who was an artist and quite well known in her own right, um, uh, put together for the cover. And she just decided this clock idea would work and picked seven minutes to midnight as a as what was <laughs> pleasing to her eye. So that's where it started, just kind of somewhat arbitrarily. Um, but then ever since then, it became this really iconic symbol for, you know, the state of nuclear affairs in the Cold War. Um, and so over the years, it's gone back and forth. Uh, we come up to, you know, the end of the Cold War, it went all the way down to 17 minutes before midnight. And then um, now uh, we've added in other things like climate change and disruptive technology to the nuclear uh, threats uh, as things we cover and the doomsday clock covers. Um, so now we're at 100 seconds, um, which is pretty close. It's actually the closest it's ever been. Um, so uh, how does that get to drinking? Uh, I basically... <laughs> well, wait, before yeah. you get to that. So how often does it get recalibrated? Recal it's not a clock that's ticking, like there's one in Union Square that's counting off the debt or something. Right. It doesn't just count down by itself. Um, Boris Johnson, actually, just a couple of weeks ago at the at the COP26 um, Glasgow Conference on Climate Change, talked about it like it was this James Bond bomb that he was, uh, you know, uh, was at one minute to midnight, which isn't right. But um, uh, it's it's a metaphor for how dire the threat of all these different issues is uh, to humanity. So again, on nuclear weapons, climate change, and disruptive technologies, which is a, a whole kind of um, you know, basket of things that we can talk about. But uh, uh, it gets set every year by the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin, which is a group of scientists and policy experts um, from all those different areas, nuclear weapons, climate and um, cybersecurity, biosecurity, especially now is important with the pandemic. Um, and they're all top experts in their fields and they come together and bring their scientific background and, and know-how and policy background to considering these issues. Um, the clock itself isn't uh, necessarily a scientific instrument, uh, but it's uh, reflecting the, the understanding that these uh, experts have about you know where we are and how worried we need to be and you know what what the direction uh, we're going in is so yeah. right now it's it's not been great the last few years <laughs> so it keeps the pulse of of what's going on in the world that's pretty cool so then the doomsday drinking guy that that that's the fun one i mean is that like how many beers I can drink before doomsday? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, right now it wouldn't be that many, I guess, a hundred seconds. But, but uh, um, basically, I was sort of interested in, well, you know, the pop culture uh, around the doomsday clock, which has had a long history of its own, um, uh, from you know back when it first appeared, um, all the way up through Watchmen, the, the comic series and the TV show. You know, has this doomsday clock that's really uh, central to it. Um, so it's been a feature in all kinds of ways in pop culture. And we've got a virtual tour on the website, actually, that, that goes into that, that you can check out um, at the Bulletin site. But the, um, but the drinking element of it, uh, to me, was interesting in the background while I was working on some of these really serious topics. Um, and then one 
day this spring, uh, I saw this big full-page ad in the New York Times from New Belgium brewers um, for this beer they called Torched Earth, which is uh, or was uh, a limited release of a beer made entirely of ingredients that would be available after the climate apocalypse, essentially. Well, wait, um, was this a real beer or this is just like a, a messaging ad? This is a real beer. So so the, the idea was part of a campaign that they were doing um, to raise awareness about climate uh, change and sustainability. Um, but they actually brewed it. Uh, it wasn't widely available. It was in... Um, Asheville, I think, where one of their breweries, um, and maybe Colorado. Uh, so I never got to try it because um, I'm here, based in Chicago, where the Bulletin is. But um, uh, but the idea was to kind of create something uh, not good, basically, because <laughs> that's what we'll be left with. Um, so the tag, the sort of slogan for the beer was, uh, you know, we brewed the brew of the, the we brewed the beer of the future. Uh, and it tastes awful. And so, <laughs> so like a climate says, it says there a climate ravaged future. So what 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 would be tainted? So um, so in their beer specifically, they used uh, smoke tainted water um, grains that were like really hardy but not as flavorful because they had to resist drought. Um, extracts that were shelf stable so you know probably full of kind of preservatives and things like that and then dandelion weeds and they put that all together and made what they <laughs> call the dark and starchy beer that that tasted bad <laughs> um, oh, sure. jo- aaron have you ever heard of that beer uh yeah yeah it got uh a lot of uh pretty easy viral press when it uh, uh came out yeah yeah very interesting Aaron, just to, for you and all your writing, I mean, you've written a lot about beer and whiskey. Um, are there other beers coming out or, or drinks that are talking about uh, climate change or things like that? Well, I mean, I think inherently a lot of makers of alcohol consider themselves, you know, farmers and people highly concerned with the environment and you know a green earth and whatnot so many of them are trying to you know in, improve how they produce alcohol as much as possible they're not in necessarily saying this is a, a doomsday beer or a doomsday gin or whatever but the mere fact they're you know having as little waste as possible in producing their stuff is saying that you know we are coming to a, a doomsday if we uh don't do a better job of uh doing everything including producing alcohol yeah and chris for you at, at beer wax uh is there more awareness from the consumers about like carbon neutral or or other like eco-friendly things in a drink um i believe so i mean one thing that is let's you know allows us to stand out uh, as a bar is that we actually are solar powered um just on that note uh we have i would say about 70 percent of our power is generated from solar panels on our roofs um and our you know some of our, our customers know that and understand that so i think they gravitate towards that but um you know it does come up in a conversation obviously because we're at such a you know a dire place with climate change with the state of the world but um so yeah i totally agree yeah. So Thomas, if this is what you write about all the time. I mean, you're you're covering different aspects of uh you said what is it it says 
array of disruptive technologies. <laughs> yeah, that's that's part of it. So like I was saying earlier, you know, we've got the nuclear beat basically and then the climate change uh uh, be and then and then the disruptive technologies and we have editors who are dedicated to each of those areas. Um, I'm the multimedia editor, so I'm sort of here to kind of do cover all of those things in some more creative ways uh, than um, just uh, the you know in depth articles that we publish on a regular basis. Um, so I bring in you know uh, some humor for one thing. Um, but also, you know, I try and do things with different multimedia uh, elements, and we've got all kinds of uh, uh, graphic uh, essays and photo essays and, and videos and things like that that we've done. Wow. So it's heavy. That's my, my that's real. But yeah, it's all doomsday. It's all heavy on on sort of the things that are that are man-made threats. That's pretty important because it's not just any threat to civilization. It's the ones that we have direct control over. Yeah. Well, then back in your intro, it says. Beer and nukes go back to the nuclear. Uh, beer and nukes go back to the early days of the atomic age. Uh, how does that tie together? Yeah. So, um, well, for one thing, the very first chain reaction, um, which was here in Chicago, the nuclear chain reaction with Enrico Fermi's group, um, was the you know origin of of the both nuclear energy as, a, as an option and, and the development of the, the nuclear bomb. Um, and they celebrated kind of famously with this bottle of Chianti um, uh, that they all signed, all the scientists signed. <laughs> um, um, so there's pictures of that you can find online of, of this famous Enrico Fermi bottle of um, wine. But, um, but beyond that, um, one of the more interesting things I brought up in the, in the story was the... Um, fact that in the 50s, uh, when nuclear testing was really happening a lot, um, the United States was was uh, conducting, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of nuclear tests. Um, uh, they, uh, one of them uh, was part of this Operation Teapot series of, of bomb tests. Um, and it was focused on seeing how a nuclear blast would affect kind of like civilian infrastructure. So houses, they built a, a little town and they put mannequins up. And then you may have even seen the footage of this. It's kind of made its way into pop culture too. You know, buildings getting sort of blown away. Um, and in that, in that test, they set up um, shelves of different food products, including drinks, including beer. So there was several different kinds of beer bottles that they, they uh, uh, with beer in them, you know, um, that they set up to basically try and blow away with a nuclear blast. And this was a Operation Q, which was about twice the, the size of the, the nu uh, nuclear bomb over Hiroshima. Um, and so they wanted to see, you know, would, what would happen to the bottles, what would happen to the contents. Um, and they didn't actually, some of the bottles didn't break at all, which is remarkable, but uh, the radiation effects were fairly minimal. But the most interesting thing about this, and by the way, I, I point to uh, historian Alex Wellerstein, who's the guy who kind of pulled this out um, uh, several years ago uh, from the archives um, and put it on his site. But um, the, the, immediate, <laughs> the, the report describes them as having immediate taste tests. 
So somebody <laughs> went out there and, and drank this beer <laughs> uh, right after it was, it was uh, you know, attempted to be incinerated by a nuclear blast. So they watched the mushroom cloud and then went out to have a, a drink, <laughs> which is kind of nuts. And what was the survival rate of those people? <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know. I think you they stayed know. anonymous. There's all these missing. Service to the country, though. <laughs> yes. Uh, such a different time. And, and jumping ahead, like you think about um, – you know, the, the, the good times, I'm going to switch it for a minute before I ask you about radiation. <laughs> um, <laughs> all the good stuff that I've been dying to ask you. I want to go to Aaron, some of the things he's written about, because we're going to segue to Chris's bar. Um, you've written so many really great articles. Um, one year we talked about what's the Black Forest beer from Germany that everybody loves? Uh, Rothaus. The Rothaus pills. I think you you... You wrote an article about that because we, we'd go to Roberta's where our studio was and every beer guy wanted the Rothaus pills. And you've all you, you've really kept the pulse for me. You're always like and right now. I know you have Vine parents and mothers. You always keep the pulse of of what's going on in the drinking world. And um, I was just read, reading an article you wrote about um, the Horse Inn in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you were talking about best bars in the country, but. It says the horse end reminds you why we like to go out in the first place. Um, I could talk about that for a minute because sense of place. I think that's really important. I know you were referencing kind of post, you know, COVID restrictions. Yeah, well, Vinepair just actually had a, uh, an awards uh, thing for, um, you know, everything from spirits producers, wine shops to breweries to uh bars and i, I believe they were uh named uh bar of the year horse Inn. um I, I didn't just outright pick that they they picked it and i wrote it but i have been to the horse Inn and i love the horse Inn. and um you're right it it is you know a perfectly fine bar to take away some cocktails from but it's a truly great bar when you get to go in there and hang out and eat dinner and drink some beers and then maybe um, you know, go on to some whiskey and then maybe play a game of foosball and then maybe have a cocktail. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what truly, you know, it reminds you what the purpose of bars are. They're not simply to make drinks and serve drinks. Yeah. No, yeah, the quote, it says, it reminds you why you like to go out in the first place. And then you said, our vision for this is a quoting the owner. You said, our vision was to make going out special again. We wanted it to be a three hour event. We wanted people to come inside and forget about the troubles of the day and relax and let us show them a great time. Did you, did you actually spend time there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been, you know, I going to Lancaster since before the pandemic, it's, you know, one of those somehow somewhat undiscovered gyms near New York city. Everyone goes to long Island and the Hudson Valley and places like that. But, you know, Lancaster's pretty close to New York. It's very close to, Baltimore and Philadelphia. And for whatever reason, it hasn't fully, you know, exploded in the kinds of publications and amongst the kind of people that, you know, I write about and for, for whatever reason, maybe it's because it's in Pennsylvania, maybe it's because it's in Amish country, I don't know, but it's, it's a real gem of a city. And there's quite a few great restaurants and bars, but uh, Horson is uh, at the top of things. Um, I think uh, the first time I went there was probably 20, 2018 or 2019 it's it's a bar that's been around since prohibition but under its current owner matt russell who uh trained as a chef under sean brock in charleston it's really you know taken a leap forward both food wise and beverage program wise yeah you know when i think about doomsday my first thought was like 
there's a lot of beer quizzes and education programs where they ask you, you know, what's your desert island beer? And I feel like when you wrote about Horse Inn, my first thought was, Aaron, what's your like last meal? It's kind of the same thing. <laughs> what would they say? You know, doomsday clock's ticking down to one second. What's your last meal and your last drink? How about that? I don't know what my last meal is, man. Um, I've said for the longest time, I went to college in Syracuse and there's a barbecue place up there called Dinosaur. We actually have a location in Brooklyn too. And they make, they just make some incredible wings. I don't know if I'd waste a last meal on, you know, (laughs) some, some $10 wings, but damn, they're good. Uh, My last drink. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, Huh. I'd probably, I'd probably go with uh, if I could get some 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 birth year whiskey, some nineteen seventy nine wild turkey. Oh man, something to think about. And now to Chris. So let's tell us about beer wax. And I want to hear about what's a Japanese record bar because you've got a cool place. And talking about sense of place and a place I want to go, and maybe the place I want to be on the as the doomsday <laughs> clock, clock ticks. Right. Tell me about beer racks, but tell me about these Japanese record bars. Yes, I mean, they essentially served as inspiration for beer racks. Um, you know, they're sometimes known as jazz kisas, uh, hi-fi bars, record listening bars. But um, essentially, the idea you know, originated in Japan uh, around the 60s. Uh, you know, at the time, uh, it was a little bit pricey to, and also rare for, for a jazz mus- musician from the States to come and tour in Japan. And there was such an explosion in interest uh, amongst young Japanese folks um, in in American jazz. Uh, so the next best thing you can do is is go to a place that plays jazz on vinyl, especially with some audiophile speakers. So it almost sounds like you're there in the recording. Uh, so these things in the 60s started sprouting up. Um, and mind you, records were super expensive at the time in Japan. Uh, so a lot of folks didn't have their own large record collections. Uh, but I guess the folks that had uh, the money for, you know, large record collections also had the money to open up a bar. Uh, so a lot of these folks opened up bars, brought all their records to the bar uh, and just spun records, typically jazz. And folks would come and sometimes there was a rule where you could not speak. It was like a no talking jazz kisa. Uh, so you just go there. The owner would usually it's the owner that was there playing the records and serving the typically a kisa is actually literally a place where you uh, sip tea, uh, but it expanded to include alcoholic beverages as well. Uh, so you would go there, listen to a side of her of her jazz record, uh, and just marvel at the musician musicianship. Uh, excuse me, I already I'm one beer in, <laughs> and um, and it was just a way for folks to to get away and really delve into into this art form. Uh, and of course, you know Japanese, whether it's hip hop whether it's jazz, have a very uh, sincere adoration for American uh, pop culture uh, and music. Uh, And to be quite honest, I didn't realize what I was conceiving in my head when I thought of the idea of beer wax was this idea of a jazz kisa. It wasn't until I explained the idea to someone uh, that they're like, oh, what you're trying to build actually exists in Japan already. Uh, And they gave me, they actually showed me some pictures of a place called Jazz, Blues and Soul, um, or JBS in Shibuya. And I looked at the picture and I said, wow, this ex- is exactly what I've been dreaming about a building in, in New York. 
And did you ever go there? I did. So I, I've never been to Japan up to that point. But when we celebrated one year uh, of being open in Brooklyn, uh, my wife and I decided to, to go to Tokyo and to pay homage to these places that served as inspiration for us. Uh, so we visited JBS. Uh, we visited a place called uh, Swing uh, that was the size probably of like one person's living room in Brooklyn. Uh, but this guy had about a 2,000 records in the space and beautiful, large, you know, old school speakers and just one person working there. And he was the owner and was just playing some incredible music for us. And literally there were two other people there. And I, I don't even know how they stay open, but these places have been open, some of them for 20 years plus. Um, and it was just incredible to see this idea that I had as something that just existed and, and uh, is thriving in Japan and continues to thrive in Japan. Well, Chris, we're going to talk more about it and in, in your new project, but, but back to what I asked Aaron, it's uh, the doomsday clock is ticking. What are you <laughs> going to drink? And then what are you going to play? What record, what record are you going to pull and play for us? But what, what are you drinking too? You can tell me what you're drinking now. if you want. What am I literally drinking right this second? <laughs> yeah. Why not? Uh, I, I pulled the um, new Black Ops Four Roses barrel aged uh, stout off the shelf for whatever reason. It's not not the greatest five PM beer, but uh, <laughs> you know I got a lot of beer in my house, so I don't need to necessarily finish it. Uh, the record I would probably play, and it's probably kind of trite, but it's been the album I've loved my entire life is the Beach Boys Pet Sounds. Hmm. Really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. All right. That's cool. Well, Thomas, you, you got us inspired a little bit. Um, what, when you're writing this, the, the guide, is this the first time you wrote the, the Doomsday Drinking Guide? Yeah, yeah. This is the first drinking guide that I'm aware of. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, it was our 75th anniversary last year, so we have a long, big archive. Uh, so I haven't checked uh, carefully, but I think uh, we, we haven't done it before. So um, this is the first... Uh, drinking guide we've probably done other other guides before but yeah how did you pick the drinks i mean i saw there was some like some things with the name atomic or but why don't you walk us through what, what some of the drinks are and it's very lighthearted, i will say <laughs> yeah i mean that was the goal you know i mean some of these topics can really be a, a downer you know uh, so um i try to 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 put a different spin on it sometimes so you can kind of learn something about these issues at the same time as not getting overwhelmed by them but um i uh so i started with that that full page ad from new belgium and kind of started going beyond that um uh just searching at first for uh things that had to do with um you know that had like beers that were named after atomic something or nuclear this or that um and there are a lot of those, right? I mean, there, the, there's something about beer for some reason that appeals to this idea of, you know, permanent death, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, you, you get a lot of cans with art that, you know, is apocalyptic and, and names that have to do with, with atomic this and that. But, but I got, the more I looked into it, the more I saw that, you know, there were actually a few breweries that really took the idea a little further and, and, kind of, you know, developed a whole kind of persona around the idea, um, either of climate or, or atomic weapons or anything else like that. So, 
um, uh, the the main one that connects to the bulletin right off the bat is the the Manhattan Project Beer Company, which um, is a Dallas-based brewery, um, and they make a ton of beers, all named in some way to do with nuclear weapons. Um, and after scientists, including Oppenheimer, and you can probably guess what the punny name they came up with for for Oppenheimer, um, which is an IPA. Um, so Hoppenheimer, um, <laughs> they've got, uh, they also did a, a beer called Bikini Atoll, which was problematic and got some press because, uh, that's a pretty sensitive subject for the, the inhabitants of the islands that the U S, um, used to do these nuclear tests back then, um, uh, and who were displaced and who were still suffering from, you know, the effects of the radiation in that area. So calling a beer after that, you know, is kind of um, questionable. Um, but uh, then there's just other beer companies that are named after more specific nuclear testing, um, uh, nuclear test series, like Abel Baker Brewing Company, which is out of Vegas. Um, and uh, And all of these companies have, like, pretty funny marketing material. I mean, they, they talk about how they're influenced by nuclear weapons, right, to build, to make their beer or at least promote it. Um, uh, so it can be pretty funny um, uh, if kind of disturbing at the same time. But um, the, uh, the, like, Abel Baker, for instance, you know, talks about their beer being, you know, dangerously potent and you'll detect a, a, a double flash of flavor uh, as you savor <laughs> notes of fig and light black pepper. Um, so there's lots of things like that. Um, and then that just took me in new directions too, because I went beyond beer. Uh, uh, there's a really good example of a non-beer uh, atomic-related uh, drink, which is uh, a group of, of researchers went to Chernobyl and um, decided to distill some vodka out of water, uh, or out of, uh, rather, with the grains, um, uh, a rye that was sort of grown in this contaminated zone um, uh, to prove that, you know, you could produce uh, safe drinks uh, or safe safe agricultural products um, in, in, the, in the area around Chernobyl. Um, and that's been an interesting process. They've also ended up making an apple-based... Uh, uh, drink that um, they're actually trying to sell now um, in the UK and in Ukraine. So um, that's that's an ongoing effort there. Um, so that you know kept going, and I, there's other examples I can give. It might, you, it but, might be uh, trendy now with COVID. Everyone's like, "Oh yeah, it's radiated, <laughs> radiated for purity." I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, and and people don't realize that's actually what. I mean, that's, that is a use of radiation. I mean, people, you know, food and, and, and food products are, are, are irradiated a lot. There's gamma rays that are used to, to, you know, help sanitize, um, all kinds of food products. So, you know, the, uh, the nuclear science is, is real when it comes to things you put in your body. Yeah. Hey, we're just getting started. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. 
My Family Recipe from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. Let's come out and support uh, Heritage Radio Network on Giving Tuesday, November 30th. Check us out and support at heritageradionetwork.org. All right. So we're talking about Doomsday Drinking Guide and Japanese record bars. Um, Thomas Kalkin of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Um, it's above my educational level, but we're having a lot of fun. Um, so Thomas, you said that radiation, uh, there was one thing you mentioned about, um, you said that were there studies done about ways to combat, say you're exposed to radiation, like drinking diuretics. Could you, is drinking beer good for you if, if you've been exposed to an atomic bomb or something? So, yeah, I mean, the Department of Energy actually has guidelines for dealing with exposure to radioactive products of of nuclear events. Um, And they do uh, recommend basically fluid intake as as a way to help uh, deal with with the, um, you know, whether it's hydrogen or, or other isotopes that, that would be in your body. Um, and if you drink enough fluid, you can help sort of dilute that effect. Um, so they recommend things like coffee, tea, but also beer and wine. Um, so that's, that's uh, official government guidance. Um, take it as you will. Hopefully nobody has to, has to test that. So Aaron, you know, you, you write a lot about whiskeys too. Does, has this ever come up any, talk about radiated uh products or is is purity you know how do you even define purity you know i don't know if what, what kind of language you're getting uh in your pitches about whiskeys well you know i get a lot of nonsense in my pitches about whiskey but uh i think di- distilling inherently strips you know the, the the product beforehand of just about everything and turns it into to to pure alcohol so uh that's why there's no reason to be scared of drinking radiated um whatever from chernobyl um yeah i get these kind of pitches i'm of the belief that uh whiskey is good for you so uh i don't know if it'll stave off radiation but uh i'll keep trying yeah and then what about you know you mentioned that in the the new belgian beer they we had to resort to using dandelions because I guess dandelions were the only thing that would grow. But like, you know, my grandfather, we used to gather dandelions and make salads. And uh, in colonial times, that was a common ingredient for uh, homebrew uh, dandelions in place as a bittering. Um, and does anybody want to talk about 
how those other ingredients could be used. I don't know. <laughs> well, actually, one of my least favorite beers of all time that wasn't intentionally meant to be a doomsday beer was made with dandelions. It's um, Fantome, one of my favorite breweries out of Belgium. They make saisons uh, and farmhouse ales. They have a, a dandelion one that I just every single time I try it does not do it for me. It's called Piss and Lit. It's nasty. I know. I know. I know a guy up in uh, uh, what the hell's his name? Raphael Lyons Enlightenment Wines. He owns Honey's Honey Bar, and yeah. um, and he makes different types of meads. He makes a really good dandelion wine, which is basically super bitter, and you're probably going to use it as like a couple drops of it in a cocktail um so the essence of it yeah can be super bitter hey chris let's tell us about your project so you reached out to me the other day and it was fortuitous because i just kept thinking wow man if we're talking doomsday then i want to be in beer wax and listen to records all night (laughs) (laughs) um but you're so you're opening another place so tell us about the campaign and what you're trying to do there and what it's like opening a second bar because that's that's very hopeful i'm into positive new things well let me start with the the last question uh it's exciting and terrifying at the same time uh to open up a second location uh in new york city you know as i was mentioned uh, before the actual recording to to aaron that a year ago i never would have assumed that we would open up a second location um things were looking pretty dire i would say you know midway through the first half of the pandemic around july of 2020 uh, we thought that we would potentially have to close B-Rax Brooklyn because things were looking so bad. Uh, but the, you know, things turned around. Uh, open streets uh, was has been a blessing for us uh, in Brooklyn on Vanderbilt Avenue. Uh, so the opportunity presented itself to to open up a second location. I was born and raised in Queens, so it just seemed like the best location for us uh, just right across the way. Of course, Ridgewood is kind of like uh, right next to Brooklyn, so... Uh, not the most Queens of Queens neighborhoods, but it's a wonderful location. I lived in Ridgewood several times uh, years ago. My my twin daughters were actually raised in, in Ridgewood, so it feels like like homecoming in many ways. Uh, is, and, it, yeah. is it the L train off the L train? It is. It's the Myrtle Wyckoff stop on the L train. So uh, so yeah, it's you know again right on the line of, of Bushwick. My wife's from Bushwick, which you've met, Jimmy. Uh, so she was walking distance from the location, uh, which is in the old theater building uh, on Cypress and Myrtle. And there used to be an old movie theater there that she used to go to when she was a kid. So it, it feels really nice that uh, one of the owners actually frequented the movie theater in, in that same building. Uh, but yeah, so we, for the first go around for Burax Brooklyn to raise money, we did an Indiegogo. Um, you know, I'm from a humble background. Uh, I was a, a New York City public school teacher um, and in education before starting uh, the bar. Uh, you know, parents uh, were both uh, immigrants. So this is, you know, the Indiegogo campaign the first time around was very successful. So we knew that we wanted to do the same thing uh, for Queens. Uh, you know, it's a lot bigger of a space than Brooklyn. So we pretty much exhausted our, our build-out budget. Our, we exhausted our, our total budget on just the build-out. So now we're looking at a beautiful empty space without furniture and without a sound system uh, in, a, in a jazz record bar. So, you know, we are doing the Indiegogo campaign at the moment. We're halfway through. Uh, we reached our – we're halfway to our goal, which is really amazing. Um, but, you know, I, what I want to impress is that 
you know, a lot of folks, I feel like, like, oh, this guy has an established bar and is successful, but the what it takes to open up a bar in New York City, uh, it, it's like moving mountains. So any little bit, you know, whether it's literally $5 or, or even just sharing the, the campaign to your friends and folks uh, is really important for us at this juncture. So how can we find the Indiegogo? Yep, it's really simple. It's you can go to our website, uh, you know, Beer Wax Queens and Beer. It's B I E R W A X Queens uh, dot com, or you can just follow us on, on Instagram, and that's Beer Wax Queens. Um, it's a link in our in our bio. Uh, there are links right there on our website, uh, or if you go to Indiegogo dot com, just search for for Beer Wax Queens. Yeah. That's exciting. So um, do you have to buy records or you have the records? <laughs> that's, that's been the question. Um, I've had <laughs> a lot of records at home that I've been hoarding. And, you know, once you're a record collector, uh, it's an obsession that doesn't stop. So my wife is very happy to get a good thousand records out of the house. And then uh, I've been collecting. We have a storage space that the excess has been going to. Uh, so we're bringing, I think, about 3,000 records for now into, into the new space. Wow, oh, man. Well, good luck. I'm, I'm glad you got to come on and talk about this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Thomas, I don't think you realize how much you uh, stimulated this this conversation because it's sometimes when we book these shows, we're waiting for the hook. And, and Chris Maestro and Beerwax opening in Queens is kind of the, the story we wanted to talk about today because when we started this show, Beer Sessions Radio, in 2010, it was actually meant to – we had created a group called Beer, Good Beer Seal – it was all indie beer bars, and, and Chris's Beer Wax became one of them. But in, initially, it was a way to spotlight all the indie uh, good beer bar owners and their establishments. So we kind of – some of you may not realize that, but we wanted to bring it back to that. Um, Thank you, Jimmy. Oh, no. You're welcome, man. I really am proud of you. And, but, Thomas, you know, this, this is a fun this is a fun, fun gig. It, so what, what are the biggest uh, – challenges that our humanity's facing <laughs> since 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 we can actually talk to you fairly intelligently sure yeah i mean well before i, I get into that i just want to say to chris um we, i should mention that the that along with our drinking guide we we, we actually have a doomsday clock playlist um oh, that's awesome. which is all <laughs> songs that are about the doomsday clock or somehow connect to it um super cool most famously probably there's uh the Iron Maiden song most people know, Two Minutes to Midnight. That's right. Yeah. Um, so um, that's on Spotify, Spotify. And, and our site. So um, check it out, Perfect. Doomsday Clock. Um, but but um, yeah, so just in terms of these these big threats that we cover at the Bulletin, uh, you know, I was um, talking about about climate change with with the New Belgium beer and, and the other uh, examples of that that I, I talk about in the um, piece. Um, but uh, it's a serious concern for the future of production in general because barley is is a you know uh, sensitive crop to to temperature change and heat um, and uh, similarly you know hops um, like places like the Czech Republic where you you know have a pilsner that really relies on that is going to have a completely different profile. Um, as as that gets affected by changes in climate, so it's a big deal for what kinds of beer get produced and how they get produced, but also you know the ultimate um, cost of of product producing beer. Um, um, and you even see like changes already happening where some places are starting to use uh, cassava instead of barley or mixing it 
Um, I think even Guinness makes one like that in West Africa. Um, so uh, that's having an effect. Climate change is having an effect on, on beer and then the alcohol industry, but it's, it's a huge problem for humanity as a whole. Um, then, you know, the nuclear issue, which is most of what I talked about before, is becoming uh, more and more alarming uh, because some of the safeguards that have been in place for decades um, are being dismantled uh, or ignored. And you see Russia and China and the United States now getting into um, kind of what appears to be a, a new arms race. So there's a lot of sort of scary stuff happening on that front. Um, and then the third area that we cover with this disruptive technologies um, just kind of runs the gamut from genetic engineering and CRISPR, which, uh, by the way, uh, is being tested out on barley uh, to make it more uh, hardy. Um, but uh, then to artificial intelligence um, and the ways that that might get, go out of control and you know cause problems for society. Um, and autonomous weapons like, you know, drones and things like that, that um, we create uh, thinking we're going to do something good with them. Um, but, you know, like nuclear weapons uh, can have really negative consequences. Well, you know, once once you drop that bomb, it, it, there's always a chance it might go off course, right? So <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Wow. Although I will say artificial intelligence has been used to make beer as well. I didn't put that in the piece, but there are a couple of breweries uh, in Europe, at least that I know of, that have used AI to um, come up with new, like optimized recipes uh, through, you know, these neural networks that that pull in, you know, 150,000 different recipes from all over the world and then kind of generate whatever they think matches the market interest. That's kind of nuts, but... I don't. I haven't tasted them, and actually, I should say I haven't tasted any of the beers on my list because <laughs> none of them were available in Chicago. But um, well, that's the other thing. Would you actually want to drink any of those beers on the list? <laughs> but who knows? That is a good question, Aaron. Um, back to you, man. So, hacking whiskey. We never really got to do a show about it. Kind of lost touch in the pandemic. Um, just tell us a little bit about that book because you you did some cool stuff in that book. Smoking, blending, fat washing, other whiskey experiments. Yeah, hacking whiskey kind of stemmed from quite a few articles I, I was writing in, I don't know, 2017, 2018. Kind of looking at people in the underground whiskey community and what they were doing with whiskey opposed to, you know, just simply drinking it. I guess at a certain point, if you're a whiskey collector and you have too many bottles, it gets boring just to open them and drink them. So you have to start playing around with them um so there's simple things from people making their own home blends that's taking several commercial whiskeys and blending them together and, and some of those whiskeys have even gotten famous there's this guy in california who makes his own blend called california gold and it kind of trades online uh you know in, in private facebook groups for uh for a lot more money than you'd think for a uh, insurance salesman in, in California who makes a, a whiskey, but, uh, you know, then there's more complex stuff that brings you into the bar world, um, where you have, you know, real avant-garde bartenders doing things like fat washing whiskey. That's when you infuse a spirit with, uh, a, a literal fat, whether, you know, rendered bacon or butter or whatnot, um, smoking whiskey, as you said, I'm sure everyone's had a smoked old fashioned before at a bar, um, which kind of dazzles, but, uh, 
yeah, just interesting stuff like that, culinary stuff, uh, stupid stuff sometimes, quite frankly, but uh, it's all fun and, and not taking your whiskey too seriously. Yeah. But you as a writer, you're, you're kind of always on your your latest project, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mean in terms of articles? Yeah. Well, yeah, like, I mean, two, three years ago is, is almost ancient history to you, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is, Jimmy. Yeah. Every every day the uh, the uh, new articles go out and new ones get started, of course. Yeah. And where are you drinking lately? What am I drinking lately? What are you drinking and where are you drinking? Those two things. What am, well, you know, I like most people, I spent, uh, you know, 18 straight months drinking at home while my kids yelled at me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't, didn't get to Chris's bar as much as I used to in the, the before times. But yeah. uh, you know, I've gone through all sorts of phases during the pandemic. Uh, you know, the big cocktail making phase where you're making cocktails every single night. Um you know, lately I've just been drinking a lot of classic uh, European beers, you know, the old classics that kind of fell out of regard in America, but are still flawlessly made and and uh, kind of standard bears for style. What what are name one or two? Uh, you know, stuff like uh, Weistefaner, which I believe is the oldest brewery in America. Um not particularly cool in America, but, you know, easy to get. You can get it in most supermarkets and. All their German style beers, uh, whether Hefeweizens or, or you know, Eisenbachs are, are, are you know, spot on and, and delicious every time. So stuff like that. I drink a lot of Czech beer and a lot of um, Czech Czech inspired American beer, which has become somewhat hot in America. You're seeing lots of lots of American breweries, you know, with with beers that have, uh, you know, those weird Czech you know, symbols and whatnot over the letters that no one knows how to pronounce, but, you know, they're making their 10, 10 degree Play-Doh Pilsners and whatnot. And quite frankly, doing a great job of it. Breweries like Threes here in Brooklyn and Schilling up in New Hampshire. So I've, I've really been enjoying watching that trend occur. That's great, man. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming on. Uh, Chris, one more time, just uh, Indiegogo for Beer Wax Queens. What is it? It's a, uh... You can just go right to our website. So beerwax, B-I-E-R-W-A-X, queens.com, or follow us on Instagram. That's beerwaxqueens. Yeah, beerwaxqueens, records and drinks, a place to wait out the doomsday clock. And then, uh, (laughs) Thomas, thanks so much. This is really fun. Thanks for reaching out. Um, Then again, when is the doomsday clock reset every year? Because I think there was urgency that I needed to talk to you sooner than later in case the doomsday clock changed yeah it's uh it's changed every uh every year it's generally set um at the beginning of the year late january um so we're uh anticipating uh that to be announced uh whatever the time will be uh at the end of january january 27th i think yeah. And and I will say what one thing about the show and talking to you it makes me realize that we many of us drinkers and and people in the the food and drink industry I feel like we don't really know a lot about science and data and uh, we just had a a new New York Times science editor reach out about science and and beer and agriculture. And I I'm glad we got to talk to you um Thomas because I think that we have a lot of myths in our lives and we uh, all need, we could all learn a little more about science. Uh, So thank you. 
Yeah, I appreciate it. What, what, what's what's one gem of science that we should know? The average person doesn't know what <laughs> that we could all learn about. Oh man, you told me about radiation <laughs> that actually we use it sometimes to purify things. Oh, uh, wow, uh, there's uh, too many things in my head, but um, one thing that I would want people to know, um, uh, I guess that. Uh, uh, you <laughs> stumped me. Um, it might be okay to drink uh, distillate from Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's true. Yeah, that 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 there's that there's change. You know, things can change. Things can be bad, um, but then they can go back, which is part of the idea of the clock too. You know, that that it's not just ticking down to midnight, but you can move it backwards, and 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 things can get better. Yeah. So yeah, well, it's the same thing. That you know, you, you got that old river like the Hudson River, and you know, it, it comes back to life and people are fishing in it. So I guess the earth can renew itself if we get out of the way. And you guys have been great, man. Aaron, sorry. I will say. Go, Toms. I was just going to throw out the beer I'm drinking right now. So um, I was trying to find something, you know, local. Um, but the the I went with uh, the uni brew. Um, so they have La Fin du Monde, which is the end of the world in mm. French. Um, but they also have uh, this Belgian-style IPA called Ce n'est pas le fin du monde, which is it's not the end of the world. Um, <laughs> so that kind of fits our theme, I guess, with going back and trying to make things better. Oh, that's good, man. Yeah, I'm actually drinking something. I don't know how I got it. Night Shift Brewing, the 87 New England Double IPA. So um, very happy with that. It helps stimulate the conversation. Thank you, Night Shift. All right. Um, so you guys have been great. Thomas, Aaron, and Chris, thanks for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout-out to our engineer, Armin Spengen. And I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank you, guys. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.